a classroom for anthropomorphized plants, cactus slackers, seaweed theatre kids, and of course, petunia preps. Teachers plants instead of teachers pets. And the teacher, yeah, he's a big tree, who gives the students apples so that they can get to know him. That's it. That's the poem. That's really lovely. It reminds me of a bunch of different children's books yes. that I've read. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was that's what I was going for, trying to capture that image of like Timothy goes to school. Mm -hmm. The the cartoons about oh, there's the rabbits and there's the raccoons and there's the turtles and they're all going to school together, but instead of animals, it's plants. I know I just described exactly what the poem says. But <laughs> yeah, that's what's been on my mind. It's a good image, and I think it lends well to this conversation about education for the third week in this series. Yep. And today we're answering a lot of big questions, in my opinion, and I'm hoping we'll get through them. So to start, we wanted to talk about food, which is something we all know. We've all eaten food. Right. And how its relationship with education has been morphed over time in a negative way, and perhaps how it can be positively used to help better children's education. You sound so practiced and professional. Thank you. So brain foods. Because <laughs> that's something that every time when I was growing up, whenever we'd have fish, I always remember and it stuck with me. My parents would always say, you have to eat it. It's brain food. Mm. And let me tell you, I didn't need much encouragement to finish my plate. But um, I always wondered if it was actually true. And it is true. So mm. I know that you took this question into more of a logistical, practical, procedural um, method by thinking about how schools can offer lunches and things like that. Yeah, I did. I just wanted to know whether beets and fish and nuts were really good for your brain or whether that was a bit of an exaggeration because I know a lot of the quote-unquote superfood mm. uh, genre can be overblown. For sure. I feel like partially even with the superfoods, it's a bit of a placebo. I remember before yeah. exams or before like a track meet, my mom would always give us specific types of food. She was like, you have to eat your carbs, carbo load, which is a thing. But same with exams. She'd give us a bunch of fruit and stuff before to try and get us our brains lubricated for the quest ahead. Well, yeah, I don't remember where I was reading it, but there was a story online about someone whose dad had always told him that you need to down a can of Coke or something like that before each exam. That's our family kind of lucky charm and you always do well with it. And the kid always found that it was the case for him. And then he was just diagnosed with really low blood sugar or something like mm. that. Well, I, don't, I don't know if there's, a, if there's a moral to that fable. <laughs> but anyway, brain foods. So, yeah, I started with like walnuts and the omega-3 foods like fish and avocados. You know, you always hear about those being good for your brain. And it's true. And I was also questioning what it means when food is good for your brain. Mm -hmm. How do you think it's usually determined? That is incredibly challenging for me to answer. I feel like in my head it would be, it helps boost concentration. So probably fats because I feel like they break down slower than sugars. Mm. So that's why the avocados and the fish and things are good for you, but a different, not like modified fats, natural ones. Is that, we're only on track? I just meant how do you think that they usually <laughs> uh, quantify it? Because uh, I, when, I, when I hear like, oh, this is good for your brain, I always, this makes me sound so dumb, but I know I do that on the podcast all the time. I always have the image of like scientists giving the person food um, after having them take an IQ test and they have to take it afterwards or something like that or like mm -hmm. memorize something. Mm -hmm. But most often what I find is being referenced is this food really reduces the risk of Alzheimer's and cognitive degeneration as you age and things like mm -hmm. that. And I suppose they kind of extrapolate that and say, well, if it's good at preventing this, it's probably... You know, that's just a sign of overall health. Mm. And yeah, the omega-3 foods, those are, those are really good for that, as well as just your general learning and memory, as you said. Mm. And berries, especially blueberries, mm. those are big anti-inflammatory and antioxidants. They can help the communication between your brain cells, which just sounds good. And I was also interested in the story about... You know, I don't know if you've heard this, but in evolution, they always say the reason we have such big brains is because of what we used to eat, what our ancestors decided to eat, helped us fuel the brain growth generationally. Mm. And that's kind of the common, the current theory is that it's not even the fact that we were eating a lot of meat. It's the fact that even before we were hunting meat, we were breaking into carcasses and eating bone marrow. Oh, wow. And salt played a role in there as well. So. Because you don't, see a lot of other, you don't see a lot of other primates like 
salting that food. That's very true. Seasoning. Seasoning, exactly. Seasoning is why we are the way we are. Yeah. I'll take that into account every time I salt my food. And <laughs> I don't know if it, if it carries on today, but <laughs> if it does, yeah, bone marrow. Another food is turmeric. Mm. I think you know that. This is kind of like a superfood, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's an anti-inflammatory. It gets mentioned all over the place. Its, it's active ingredient is called curcumin, and it helps new brain cells grow. It boosts mm. serotonin, and it can benefit memory. Yeah. I am putting together this thing for solacine. You don't know this yet, but okay. I'm putting together a guide to boosting memory and getting off the internet. It's very much in the prototype stage, but turmeric and cocoa were both listed as Ooh. things that boost memory. Yeah, I did see that. Dark chocolate. Yeah. Even like dark chocolate did, does have short term, uh, there is data to prove that it will just help you do better for a test and things like that. Because it boosts serotonin, which yeah. is crucial to your brain doing a lot of other things, not just being happy. Beats. Beats. You're a big beat guy. Yeah, and I know this, this angers you because you probably always want beats to be like bad for you or something because <laughs> you don't like the things that I champion and the things that I make you eat, but they contain a lot of nitrates and these can promote mm. the dilation of blood vessels, mm. which generally just increases blood flow to the brain. Wow. Which is a really good thing. And the podcast I was listening to also said, and they'll also stain the heck out of a wooden chopping board. Oh, yeah, they I, will. I can attest to that. <laughs> Stain the heck out of your fingers as well. And um, certain mushrooms, also really good for you. And when I was thinking about food, I was like, well, it's not just the types of foods, okay? Because mm. all the articles and podcasts and videos I could find on the subject were mainly assessing the diets and routines of confessed geniuses across time. So like mathematical geniuses, I don't know, political thinkers, just celebrities, artists who often lean towards more eccentric diets. And the, the podcasts and the videos were kind of making the point that, see, this person just drank alcohol and ate leaves. And, <laughs> <laughs> and they produced the Sistine Chapel. But one, I, th I feel like that's a fallacy, that, that line of thinking. And another thing that I found really interesting, even amongst the most eccentric examples, which are, of course, what kind of makes the news and what people know of, is that even whatever they were eating, it tended to be quite regular. They tended to have mm. quite, a, quite a routine and possibly even take it to absurd extremes. Like there's a story about David Lynch, who every day for, I think, seven or eight years just went to the same cafe and had the same drink and the same like baked good. Mm. And Steve Jobs was famous for being... Uh, rather militant about always following like certain diets and you do that for a week or a month and stick to it very closely and Nikola Tesla there's some stories about him always dining at the same times and things like that so I do think that whatever you're eating and I don't really want to be like promoting too many dietary habits on the podcast because that's not really our bag but I do think routine is a good is a good habit universally I agree. I didn't think about that too much when thinking about brain foods and mm. routine and such. But even you have to think about those eccentric examples who it's like they drank just wine and a cigarette every day or whatever and they produced these famous paintings. It was more than anything probably the lifestyle of low stress and low inflammation, I suppose, that we have from our diets and even how we eat. Mm. And speaking of how we eat, how did you like your lunch times in school? My school lunches. Yeah. They were often very lonely. Yes. And <laughs> it was often just me and my lunchbox, which mm. contained for roughly 12 years a juice box, a yog, a yog tube, a yogurt tube, a sandwich or two, and a fruit or a granola bar. Mm -hmm. That was the standard across everyone I've ever met. Yes. That's what they had for lunch, essentially. Sometimes the sandwich would be subbed out for something else, but. That was the general structure, always the juice box. Then you had your water bottle as well, which you would sometimes be lucky enough to have a fountain at your school that you could fill up. Yes, yes. I remember there was this period of time where you just couldn't drink the water at our school for a couple of years. Mm. So like what you brought in the morning was what you got. Mm. So if you were thirsty, too bad. And I know it's very different even across North America, the degree to which students eat at their school cafeterias or they take their lunches or they go home for lunch. But overall, the average amount of time for a lunch in North America is 40 to 60 minutes. 
However, they often stagger the times that the children are in the cafeterias eating because the cafeteria, cafeterias are a limited size, so they can't fit the whole school in at once. Mm. So it's usually 15 to 20 minute chunks you have to eat. That includes getting to the cafeteria, washing your hands, if you're doing that, getting your lunch out, eating it, and so on. And I remember in elementary school in particular, there was one microwave that the whole school used. And in those 15 minutes, oftentimes you'd just be stuck in the lineup with a cold lunch that you'd have to start eating because you had like two minutes left. And a lot of other examples like that, but overall it promotes this really negative relationship to food, which we talked about on the What's Wrong episode. But not just the negative relationship to food, the fact that you then have like two or three hours of classes after that Mm -hmm. that you're supposed to be alert for. So even if you get to eat a nice lunch in those 15 minutes, it's not going to have digested in the time that you then have outside or doing whatever. And if you forget a lunch, a lot of times in Canada, from my experience, I know it's a little different in the States, like there isn't an alternative. Like you just have to kind of go hungry if you forget it and don't have any money to pay at the cafeteria. Those were, those were dark days. Yeah. And if you had scrounged some, some money from your friends, you were like, hey guys, I forgot my lunch. Do you all have some money? And they'd say, yeah. You pull your money, you go to the cafeteria to get something. Your options are pizza, baked <laughs> chips, juice. Yeah. Sometimes they'd have fruit, but usually be quite moldy. Just kind <laughs> of... Not healthy is what Not healthy. Yeah. yeah. I remember, this is slightly of an aside, but when we were in university and we had a meal hall, which offered a great variety of foods every day, which was very fortunate, but... There was the one station which was, as you described, more pizza-y, junky french fries. And I don't know if it was my high school brain or what, but I was convinced that hot dogs, there's something about them that are actually, they don't deserve to be lumped in with the rest of those foods. They're good for you. You did have that era. And I actually did look into it for today's episode. Why? Because I I (laughs) still have a feeling because sausages are so cultural and historical and they can't be so awful for you. Like hot dogs, they're not that far from sausage shape-wise. And they're kind of colored like brains when you think about it. And they feel almost like eating a, a brain in a tube. I hope there's no vegetarians listening to this. Yeah. They're not going to like... But no, they're not. The conversation. They're not good for you. No, of course they're not good for you. They're like the opposite to me. They're like the anti-aesthetic of health. <laughs> they're just one color of pink. Like, yeah, well, no, there's they, no way. They took them off the factory floor or whatever it is, but yeah. Mm. Okay, I'm glad that you have proven once and for all that they are not healthy. I'm sure sausages are perhaps a step above, but not not hot dogs. And <laughs> getting back to the question, which is what should the relationship to food be in schools? I think it should be a longer lunch break, and it should just be a priority. It should be treated like a class, as it is in some parts of the world, hmm. where, okay, we're going to give the students an hour to two hours. Treat it like a class. You're going to have... 45 minutes to eat, and we don't expect you just to like scarf down your food so you can get outside faster. We expect you to wash your hands, share the food with your friends, and the school, I think it should be top, top priority that the school provides high quality food for students because there's countless studies on the benefits of healthy food to students' performance, Mm -hmm. and it's a one-to-one ratio pretty much of students in higher economic classes who perform better due to their diets versus lower economic classes. Obviously, there's a number of other reasons, but diet is the number one thing impacting students' performance because it impacts concentration, behavior. Like, for example, in classes where students eat, like, really junk foodie lunches, after lunch, it's just chaos. The teacher can't control them. And it's been disproven the link between sugar and hyperactivity, but it still promotes bad behavior, bad foods do. Sugar? Not just sugar. Well, it's still going to give you the crash. Yeah, the unbalanced diet, Mm. nature of the diet. And I thought I'd bring forward my favorite case study of school lunches in France. Okay. In France, essentially, there is a nationwide program that says you need to provide lunches in schools. And there's different mandates that go on. Okay, now you have to have one vegetarian meal a week and so on. But they're not funded entirely by the federal government. They're funded by the municipalities, which is crazy to me. Imagine the mayor of your town 
getting together with your school chef every single week or every single month to plan out the diet for that month. Hmm. That was crazy because I'm like, why would the mayor be concerned with what the kids are eating? Why wouldn't she? No, it's it sounds ideal. It reminds me a little bit in America where a lot of the schools are funded or at least partially funded by property taxes. Mm-hmm. But what it does mean is that there's an inequality because the rich neighborhoods are going to have more money for their schools. Exactly. Which is not a good thing. No, it's not a good thing. <laughs> but I understand that local government should, should definitely play a bigger part in it. Um, Hogwarts comes to mind. And it strikes me also that we've been a little bit too compromising, I think, so far in this episode and also in the previous episodes in the education series. I don't know what it is about the education discussion that perhaps we're just uh, really, really not used to trying to be idealist with it. But it's like it shouldn't be a question of whether schools will provide lunches in the solar scene. Of course they will. Like that's, this is the, the ideal world. This is utopia. Yeah, they can. Yeah, and learning about the lunches in France was like thinking about kids who went to Hogwarts because there are always three to four courses, it seems, including an entree, an appetizer or a side dish, a dessert and a cheese course, which I thought you'd be interested in because you like dairy. I do, but you're the cheese fiend. I do love cheese, but you're the one who let me get back into dairy, not let me, enticed me because I was always like pretty anti-dairy, but then you're like, no, it seems good for you. And I feel like the fact that they have a whole cheese course in French schools is really inspiring to me. Okay. And looking into the school system in France, lunch-wise, I also started looking into its education system as a whole and a bunch of other school systems across the world and like what age they started at, which age they end at. And France specifically had a really unique start age, which is now being pushed lower to two years old. Wow. Yeah. Two years old. I had never heard of that. And it's not necessarily they're going into grade primary or kindergarten age two, but it is a type of kindergarten and which is really focused on teaching children language Mm. because there's a lot of immigrants to France and people who speak a lot of different languages anyway. So in those families where they speak a different language in the home, the kids, if they entered school at age six, only ever hearing a different language than French, they're going to be slightly out of luck. So the thinking behind starting them at age two is to learn the language. Yeah, I guess that makes sense in a globalized world. I agree. What do you think, what do you feel like the ideal start age is for a kid? Um, yeah, I was looking into it around the, the countries and it doesn't seem like there's, I mean, France sounds like a, a mild outlier there with two mm. years old. It doesn't sound like there's that much variation. You're either four or five or six. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't really think it matters that much. I think it would be a lot dependent on the kid. It's probably quite obvious to the parents and those around them if they're ready for school or not. Mm-hmm. You know, there's probably some five-year-olds who are lagging maybe they should go an extra year and vice versa that's what i that's what i was thinking i was thinking in the solo scene we'll have an option i feel like the starting at age two is an interesting option to have if parents perhaps just don't have the capacity to prepare the kid from that young whereas other families perhaps they do just want to have their kids at home teach them the basics themselves i think having the option and then six as the definite 100% of these six-year-olds need to be enrolled in school or in some kind of education. Yeah. Um, but I think the option is a good good idea for the solo scene. One thing I've always found hilarious is that within a grade, there will be kids who are practically a year apart anyway, mm. which I know there's no way around with the current way that we do um, grades, which is the cutoff is September 12th or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But then if there's a kid born on September 13th, then they are a year older than the kids kids at the end of the year. And that leads to, I feel like a lot of really weird dynamics because those kids are just always going to be way bigger. (laughs) Like there's going to be stuff like that going on. They're always bigger and cooler. I'm sure. I mean, I didn't look up to it, but I'm sure there's data. The the more popular kids and you know, cause they're like faster. Yeah. They can drive first. That's true. Yeah. And so I think either not having the kids in these silos of these one year groups perhaps bigger age ranges in we were general both, we were both kind of like the runts of our grade you more so right with the summer birthday 
Yeah, it was very small. But I was always, <laughs> yeah, slightly smaller as well. I mean, obviously it evens out as you age, but at the start, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it can be quite dramatic, I think, within yeah, the class. Which is 100%. Which is just funny. It is kind of funny. I think there's a little bit more of a meaningful debate to be had about, or conversation to be had about when kids finish school. Mm. And again, it's like amongst the developed countries, I didn't find that much variation between 16, 17 or 18. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think about it as in how it felt the last couple of years in high school, because mm. we finished when we were 18. We went to school in Nova Scotia. And that's what pretty much all of North America does. And when I'm actually trying to reappraise it, I do think that it could end a year earlier. I do think that 17, maybe 16 is a little bit too young, but 17, I think is because effectively you're just trying to determine what's the age when they become mature enough to be in society and the workplace and everything. Mm. And I think 17, because for the most part, the last year of high school is just everyone bragging about how they have better things to do anyway, or at least that's how it was at my, mm. in my class. Everyone was just talking about their jobs they had or desperate to get to college, mm. et cetera. Yeah, and then there were the group of kids doing the uni prep courses anyway, if you were doing AP or IB or exactly. whatever version of that you have. And so I feel like, to me, my answer to this question was stopping high school as we knew it. Yep those basic mandatory curriculums at age 15. Wow. And then having 16 to 18 options. So yeah. it varies across the world. Like in Quebec, they have a one-year option that you can do after you finish. Hmm. And it's called Cégep. Or in France, it's a three-year thing called Lycée. Or in more northern countries, I think it's... Or even across Europe, it's called Gymnasium. This is an intermediary between high school and university? Yeah, but it's to varying degrees across the world, mandatory. So in the solar scene, I imagine kids stopping 15, but not that's not the end of their education officially. Like they have to do the gymnasium or the last few years of university prep, or there could be different options. You could do vocational, you could do an apprenticeship. Mm. But I feel like at 15, kids know what they want to be for the most part. My sister was 15 a year or two ago, and she always knew what she wanted to be at that point. I feel like those last two years in high school, when you're a 15-year-old in Canada, Three years after you're 15, your spirit for life almost just dwindles. Yeah, I, I agree with that part, but I do disagree with the fact that most, or with the idea that most 15 year olds know what they want to be. Well, that's why they're not going right into university. They're going to go into a more general preparatory experience, but they have a they have a choice. I feel like at 15, they have an idea. Ah, so it might actually be helping them to not make the wrong mistake when it comes yes, to choosing a degree because it's free. Oh, it's free, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do like that idea, yeah. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. I don't know, 15. I think maybe 16. I, yeah, maybe I was 16 and have it be a two-year program because in grade 10, which is when you're 15, you're still learning a lot of stuff. That's true. I would say we, we get rid of grade 11 and 12 and have it be this kind of transitional thing. I like that. Alors Cégep hmm. in Quebec. You have to wonder where the grading system came from in the first place, don't you? Why are we in school for a mandatory 13 years? And then now an almost mandatory two or four years on top of that, because I feel like we're, I mean, it's always said a bachelor's degree is basically the new high school degree and that Mm. even people working in jobs that don't require one have a bachelor's degree. Yeah. And even if you're not getting a bachelor's, if you want, as you said, a trades Mm. license, it's usually going to take at least two years. Mm. Whereas perhaps in the past, there were more high school graduates coming out with the or, or more roots, though, as you know, you could do an apprenticeship, you could go straight into the workplace, things like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like apprenticeships are, need to come back. I know that they exist all over the world. Like lots of people I know have done internships, but I feel like apprenticeship is different. It's you're going to spend a year under this person's wing, and it's more like that one-on-one teacher model. But there's enough people around. No, there's enough people around for sure, but it's, it's, I think that's a reflection of the way economics has changed to the mm. point that your local builders, you know, just work for a giant building firm or the same with your local chefs. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't really, it's not their restaurant. Mm-hmm. They can't do that. I was reading about how architects in like the Middle Ages, um, who were, like they were the builders. So the architects and the builders, the people putting the bricks on the ground actually knew more about construction than the people today who the bricks on the ground in a lot of cases because they were also involved in getting the materials and things like that so that that um full-bodied understanding of your job like if you're a baker back in the day you knew everything about baking 
Whereas a lot of bakers today, um, if you, like let's say the baker who just works at the local supermarket, most often isn't even ba isn't baking the thing mm. from scratch. Again, that sounds like I'm criticizing them. I'm not though. I, no. I think I just think that was a that was a different time in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah, I feel like today we either go the two extremes. It's either you try and do everything yourself and you're kind of bad at it all, hmm. or you are just doing like a really specific task. There's no balance of like community and individualism. It's just either you're fully individual or you're fully just a part of, I don't even know if you can call it community at that point when you're just... Yeah, you're just a cog, basically. Cog, yeah. Are we in mm -hmm. the part of the episode where we're talking about, to quote you from the last episode, negative... <laughs> Negative grubby holdovers. Yeah, we are. So my first one that I wanted to bring up was a gripe that you and I shared for many years, or for the last four <laughs> years or so, was the random required courses that we had to take in university for our degree. And I'll quote myself over many, many rants, and you have to pay for them. Because <laughs> I always said that, because that was, that was one of the things that annoys you most when you're having to take out loans for your degree and things, and you're having to take out loans for classes you don't want to take. Yes. And that you don't want to learn about. Yeah, and there's no option to just write a test no, to exactly. skip them. Yeah. So this is called in the US uh, general education or gen ed. And it basically there, with ours, it was kind of sprinkled through our degree. Mm -hmm. Although I think mostly uh, clustered in the first year or the second year. But there it is like almost a mini program that they have to take at the start of their diploma. Mm. And it's often a third to a half of a degree, which I thought was an incredible amount. That's insane. So um, it was kind of instated in the 1800s to standardize student knowledge because I guess high schools and elementary schools were so much less standardized that kids coming to universities from different places knew wildly different things. So this is like, we need a baseline in how you can write, talk, do some math, you know, know mm. some basic trivia stuff. Yeah, that's still purported as the reasoning behind it. They say, well, we need to catch everyone up because mm. I remember first year biology and chemistry we just kept saying, this is what we did in high school. Why yeah. do we have to do it again? And they said, well, we want everyone to have a baseline before you go into your second year, which is obviously we want everyone to be have the opportunity to learn these things. The standardization or the baseline should just come before university or be an so. option. Yeah. Well, like, like a summer, we offer these things over the summer to yeah. prepare you for the school. I agree. So that so much of your courses aren't learning how to write an essay. Mm -hmm. Or in your case, learning how to use Microsoft Word. Yeah, that was my least favorite course, um, but... <laughs> I, I understand the motive behind it, which is we want to ensure a kind of breadth of education as well mm. as just a depth in one particular subject. I'm just saying I don't think it was very effective. I think it's it's like this this extension of the school's bureaucracy, which is the least favorite part of most students anyway, and especially since it assaults you on your first entrance into the school it's like this is immediately put into to disillusion you and it's just another box to check i mean i didn't care about macroeconomics so mm -hmm. i didn't put much effort into it i don't remember anything about it but i checked it off so i could get my degree it's, exactly. it's kind of like that yeah it's frustrating in elementary and high school when it's these are things that are irrelevant to me these are not like these are too basic or these are too hard or whatever it is but then be extended to when you're paying for it just really yeah i mean I, but like I say, I understand, I don't think you want kids majoring in computer science who can't give a presentation or who don't know the last 10 presidents or whatever it may be. Mm. But I just think that's what high school should be for. I think yes. university, higher education should be, here's where I get to choose what I want to really learn about. Mm -hmm. Super specific. And people who are going into university know themselves, they're adults. They're not kids. They're like, oh, I'm just going to skip all these courses. I don't need them. If they actually needed them, like if you actually were interested in macroeconomics or you were taking another course where it's relevant and you were challenging or yeah. struggling with that, maybe you'd then go and take it. Hmm. Well, but I like think letting that, them choose. I think there should, like a degree should have required courses, of mm -hmm. course. Like I took an environmental science degree. There should be required environmental science and environmental science adjacent courses. Mm. I don't think it should just be willy-nilly. But as you said, it's a, they're adults and if they want to take electives, they'll take electives and then mm -hmm. they'll learn about things they actually want to learn about. Mm -hmm. Almost everyone's favorite courses were electives, I think. Of course. But not yeah. forced electives. My negative grubby holdover that I wanted to talk about, there are many of them. <laughs> Let's talk about classrooms, perhaps. Okay. Because that's one thing I always wondered. I was like, why is every classroom in this entire country identical? 
Mm. Same chairs, same desks, same Pearson textbooks or whatever you yeah, have you. The, yeah, the um, ceiling tiles with the dots in. Yep. I <laughs> can't tell you how many hours I would just spend counting, counting them and trying to, um, <laughs> trying to. Discern a pattern? No, not discern a I pattern, but trying to like, I would picture a small corner of them okay, and say, of a tile and say, okay, that's about one tenth of this tile. Count mm. how many are in it. Use it to try and estimate how many are in one tile. And then how many for the whole ceiling? And then mm. if I was feeling especially gregarious or adventurous, try and figure out how many for the whole building. Oh, wow. That's yeah. incredible. I know. <laughs> but I just always figured the reason classrooms all look the same is because it's the cheapest way to furnish them, furnish them. That's pretty much it. I mean, it was originally established in medieval times that a teacher would be lecturing a room full of students all in desks or whatever. And then when education became more widespread when child labor was banned in North America. A bunch of kids were like flooding to schools and that's kind of when they stopped being cute, kind of kitschy, what's the one word? Room, one, one room, room schoolhouse. schools. And also schools used to be, they were a little bit more innate. Maybe there was a nice fountain or a nice yard, but because kids were flocking to sign up for school, they had to put up a bunch really quickly with multiple rooms. And so there came the kind of gross low lighting or whatever and then again after world war ii same thing happened there's a ton of kids who are now like in school and that's where most of our schools that we went to were built in the 50s and 60s and one thing in particular that stood out to me that i read about classrooms is why the windows are so dark or why there's just so few windows in a lot of schools yeah the reasoning was because in the 70s when they started trying to conserve energy because of oil shortages and uh, such, they had less windows or boarded up windows or closed them in so there wouldn't be heat escaping yeah. to be more efficient. That makes sense. A little bit. I just, I always imagined it was because they wanted to minimize distractions. Like mm. lecture, all our lecture halls, they practically had no windows. Mm -hmm. And one thing that often annoyed me is that they never had any clocks. Yeah. Maybe they thought that sound would annoy people during exams and things, but... I just would have liked to know the time. That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was one more thing I read about school designs, and it was that a lot of them in the early 2000s were built to minimize crime in schools. So that's why it's like, it was talking about like the weird angles of stuff. It was like so that people would be able to like see you at all times. Okay. It, it was like this, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was that the schools were just built to minimize crime within them. Well, I don't know about that, but I do... It does make me think, as did your comment about, or your description of how we've kind of force-fed um, in short periods of time and not allowed to all have lunch at the same time, is it's very prisony. Mm. You know, it's very like surveillance-y and wearing orange jumpsuits type thing. Phineas and Ferb probably did that a lot. <laughs> probably showed that in little parody videos. My next grubby holdover. Speaking of Phineas and Ferb, the organism of the week is... No, I don't have any. I'm just joking. Um, my next grubby holdover is no school uniforms or mm. depending on who you're talking to, school uniforms. Yeah. And I just kind of wanted to introduce this topic. And I was wondering when they dated from. And it's a little bit hard to date exactly because I think academic institutions and religious institutions tended to blur a lot more. So it's mm. like, well, what's a school and what's a church school? And of course, those are going to have uniforms and mm -hmm. such. But at least since... 16th century in the UK, there were school uniforms. And since then, there has been a lot of debate. It's probably one, been one of the biggest discussions, I would say, in like public educational discourse. Should we have these? Shouldn't we have these? Is it too uh, tyrannical? Or would it be just a free-for-all with, with no guidance? <laughs> There's been a lot of legal issues, a lot of really public debate and also conflicting data about the benefits or lack thereof. What do you think about school uniforms? I like school uniforms. Me too. I love them. And I, I love dressing. Dressing for school in the morning was one of my favorite things. It's fun. could express yourself with your clothes, but also it's distracting. And I just think school uniforms build a sense of community, mm. and they have a lot of positives in my mind. Well, the reason I mention it is because I think for next week it should be Designer solo scene school uniform. Ooh. I thought that'd be fun. Yes. Have you seen that that TikTok meme? It's like 
oh, you're dressing for school, but then you forgot that you go to the Euphoria High School. Mm-hmm. And it's like the Squidward sound. Mm-hmm. I think that just sums it all up. I don't think that, I mean, again, I sound like such a boomer, but I don't think that high school uh, hallways should be like a runway. I agree. And I'm all for creativity in students and freedom and things like that. But I think there should be a, a deeper level of, of creativity and freedom instilled in them, not just this, not just this kind of like superficial rebellion of I'm going to wear what I want to school. And that, yeah. you know, that shows, that shows them who I am because hmm. it doesn't really. No, it's. Yeah, school uniforms take equity in a good way, whereas I feel like the way that schools try and make things equal is this kind of polar opposite of, oh, someone's, like, I'm just, like, making room for the differences Mm. instead of encouraging students to be a community and be one and... Yeah. Yeah, making room for the differences sounds bad, but I don't mean it in that way. I just mean in, like, they're not encouraging people to come together in the middle. They're just trying to, like... Yeah. Broaden what they accept in this bad way to me. Well, I remember in school in England, I used to really, really, really despise the school uniforms. Our mm-hmm. school uniform was we either had, it was a white polo shirt, I think, for the boys, mm-hmm. and either a bright red or a bright green jumper with like gray trousers or shorts mm-hmm. and black, like crispy shoes. Mm-hmm. And I always used to really despise my least favorite day of each year was in August or something before school started when we go school uh, shoe shopping. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't like these types of shoes. I want to wear mm-hmm. trainers or sneakers. And I'd always be kind of envious of the people who... Um, who got to bend the rules a little bit. Yeah, who were kind of bending the rules a little bit. But now I know that... Well, now I think that if I had been in a school that was just a free-for-all and I was eight or seven, mm-hmm. I would have been a lot more envious of the people who were mm-hmm. wearing shoes that I didn't have and mm-hmm. things like that. And I, I just love the idea that it would minimize the way that kids put themselves into hierarchies based on what they're wearing. Mm-hmm. That was like probably always the biggest thing that I was ever like bullied for was what I wore. Yeah. And that was honestly just because it was like, I was always wearing kind of just whatever. I dressed pretty practically from a young age and fun. And I always would like tuck my shirts in and stuff and people would always make fun of me. But yeah, if I was talking in my uniform shirt, I feel like it'd be a lot different than talking in my like shirt with a monkey on it or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. I love school uniforms. I'm excited to design one for next week. Something that I don't love, something else I don't love, one of the many, many things, is standardization, which I didn't realize how much I disliked until preparing for this season. I think, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the reasons I didn't hate standardization when I was in it is because it's so easy to game. And I was Mm -hmm. just all about getting good grades, so multiple choice and really predictable tests and very basic and... um, kind of by the numbers curriculums that was it doesn't require a lot of engagement really yeah that's exactly it because (laughs) the reason that standardization is so easy to game is because in the states because I I don't know too much about Canada I was mainly looking at the states it was okay we want all of the test scores to be standardized so we know how different school boards are doing schools and if your school can't reach these certain standards either your whole staff will be fired or the school will be closed so they had to start standardizing curriculum so that they would be able to more universally achieve these test scores. So it wasn't like, oh, we're standardizing the curriculum so that everyone has a really well-rounded education. It was literally just to cater to these few tests, which were established hundreds of years before and very minimally modified. So they were testing really outdated knowledge back from the Industrial Revolution. It's slow, right? It's clumsy. To, yeah. It's slow and clumsy to change because it's so big. One thing that we always say about Canada, and it fits for the U.S. as well, is that by most of the world's standards, they're not really countries. They're much more like continents. Mm-hmm. Like it, so why would someone on the East Coast be learning the same as someone on the West Coast? It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's so silly to me. Yeah. And even I learned that the Common Core curriculum was pretty much written by just 27 people in a room, like over less than a year. Mm. And if you're developing a school curriculum for a country as huge as the States, it should be thousands of people coming together to write it and okay they're going to write in caveats for different places this is where you can insert your local history you can insert your local experiences or what have you and yeah not a fan of standardization I have a question perhaps of like what are some alternatives to standardization because I suppose it would just be basically well not standard 
changes, but like some examples perhaps. Yeah. I understand the need for school boards and some level of standardization because I think it's good that the government keeps an eye on that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. You don't want schools just indoctrinating kids with like something that the whole area doesn't like right. or whatever. Or, or like you, you don't want a giant difference between the rich and the poor areas. Mm -hmm. That's not fair. So I do think standardization makes sense from that perspective. But finding a balance, yeah, that's a good question for next week. Yeah, and like, yeah, raising the floor. It was talking about the lunches in France. I was watching this video about it. And it said the floor is so high. Like the floor in like the most impoverished neighborhood, the school that has like no funding, their lunches are still better than anything you're going to get in America for the most part. And obviously there's still disparities, but the disparities are just so much less because of the, the high floor. Yeah, the dropout rate and things like that. Mm -hmm. well, one example of a, a kind of relic of standardization that I was questioning was the fact that we are groups at all just by the year that mm. we are born in. And the alternative to this is like kind of merit-based. So if you're really smart, you move up with the kids who are doing this and you know it, it's a little bit more mm -hmm. like that. And I was looking at the origin of why we do that, kind of uh, group them by the year of birth. And I think it was just because it's the easiest thing to do, as you said, once there was a rush towards schools, the expansion from the small one or two room schoolhouse, it's kind of like, well, how else are you gonna divide them? Mm. And those are the kinds of holdovers that I always think are ripe for big revolution, the things that no one's really considered you know, mm -hmm. to any great length. And that when it was being instated, not a lot of thought went into it. Yeah. And I feel like the thing with like grouping children based on something other than age, it's always like, okay, you're starting as a five-year-old and you're being labeled as 16. less capable or oh, like yes. whatever on a scale, like it's going to stay with you and that group of kids is going to be less prosperous perhaps. But if you did it in a way that was like the language was well-researched and the kids weren't like told, hey you're being held back or like, hey, you need to skip a grade because obviously those kids who skip a grade are always going to be above the rest because they have that boost of confidence and yeah. so on. That's what I mean. It's it's a it's a rocky subject, but yeah, it just strikes me again because like I said, even the kids within a grade, are, they have about a year between them anyway. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah, for sure. Speaking of grubby holdovers, the organism of the week is, do you know what that is from my drawing? Some sort of jellyfish. Nope. It's a crab, a horseshoe crab. Well, it I is, don't think it was drawn very well then. <laughs> it's one of the oldest organisms on Earth. Wow. 300 million years old. Can you believe it? Take that, humans. Yeah. They, are pre, they look like prehistoric crabs, but they're not crabs. They're in the family of creepy crawlies. They're like sea scorpions and other things that are creepy and crawly they have 10 legs they have 10 legs i'm yeah. not seeing that i see one stick this is their armor they have this armor on top oh. of them which yeah i need to describe it they have a little armor yes and then they have these kind of spiky things coming out of the armor and a really long tail and then underneath the armor is a bunch of eyes no yeah but they're underneath you don't have to see them legs and all of their organs and everything their brains they're found in almost all of the oceans in the world, and they change areas based on season and like season of their life. And during full moons, new moons, and high tides during May and June, hundreds of thousands of them crawl onto the beach in Delaware Bay. That sounds terrifying. I would not want to be there. How big are they? Did you see a picture of them? Yeah, they're like 12 to 18 inches. Ah, does it look like something that creep me out? Yeah. My family loves the story of when we were on a beach and I was young and I think I, I don't know if I touched a crab or just saw one, but they say they've never seen me sprint so fast and so far just a, just across this crowded beach. And I'm pretty sure I was screaming all the way. So crabs. Yeah. I'm kind of creeped out by crabs. Yeah. So that's why I did a pretty simple no, drawing. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, super old. And I also thought it was cool that they changed areas based on age of their life because I feel like when we're talking about kids and when they should start school and such it's a question of them moving around not being in the same classroom for 13 years yeah that's a reach it's a reach but I I, <laughs> I went there and they also kind of move around in schools of fish oh my last grubby holdover is the lecture the lecture 
not the entire, I'm not kind of writing off the whole form of it, but I'll say the lecture as the dominant or even sole form of transmission of information. Yeah. Because, I mean, again, it's hard to date when people listen to one person talking, but even mm. from a from a formal organized standpoint, it dates back to at least the 5th century BC in ancient Greece, as we mentioned in our zine, mm. the education zine available now. Yeah, that, that idea of someone giving an unbroken diatribe to explain a concept to other people, perhaps younger, who don't know the concept, mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense, especially in a world where there are no books or internet. In a world where we do have books or internet, doing that solely as the most efficient way of teaching kids everything for 12 years seems a little bit outdated to me. Mm. Compensez-vous. I agree. That's not how we learn for the most part. The best way in my head would be some kind of hybrid where people get to explore the concepts on their own, be it peruse books, peruse, they just set out a bunch of things and you try and make the connections on your own. And then the lecture afterwards to reinforce and say, okay, you thought this, you're right. Or you thought this, you're wrong. Yeah. And so on. So I think lectures as supplementary. Lectures are like one of the best ways that I learn. No, I love lectures. Yeah. But it's like, it can't be just lectures. Yeah, that's the thing. There's so many lectures I've forgotten. Exactly. There's a few that I remember, though. Mm -hmm. Those are one of the, some of the highlights of my life. So mm -hmm. some of the really great lectures. But yeah, having them be the sole thing. I had this idea. This is just a maybe a radical idea, but a school that is just tests. So every, every class, you're being tested. And you know, I like this idea from this movie called, this anime movie called Ocean Waves. Mm -hmm. There's a giant scoreboard on the wall that all the kids are like, on like a, a league table kind of graded. Yeah. So it's all about assessments. Okay. And everything is, all the learning is done independently, except for maybe there are some classes where it's like troubleshooting classes. Troubleshooting Tuesday. Okay. I, I hear you. It's an interesting <laughs> idea though, right? It's an idea. Well, okay. You, you might not like it because you don't like the kids being pitted against each other or whatever. But I don't, but... But it would work. I think yeah. it, it would work. Yeah. Hogwarts, again, with like the points. Hmm. Also, I think that since I already mentioned, I think Timothy goes to school and Hogwarts and Ocean Waves. And I was going to mention Dead Poets Society. But next week, we should have a question, which is our favorite examples of education in media. Ooh, I like that a lot. Yeah. As you know, I'll probably just pick Hogwarts. But you never know. I might be able to find <laughs> something new. <laughs> That's all my grubbies. All your grubby grapes? Yeah. Yeah. Some of my final things for this episode were about how we rely so much on phones. Our question from last week was how do we internalize knowledge in a world of externalization, raise something like that. Yep. And it, would, it was hard to think of this because it's been so long that we relied on even like since the dawn of writing, we've relied on externalizing knowledge. But I think there's a difference between externalizing knowledge on paper and externalizing it on a phone and relying on Google because I read this good quote and it said, it's not that your brain's like stupid or something. It's just that it moves slightly slower than Google. So you're always going to go to Google because it'll be faster than you having to wait a couple days for that movie to pop into your head. Yeah. And the way that our brains organize knowledge is like shock based, basically. So like the most shocking things you ever experienced, you'd recall immediately if someone said, oh, should you like feed a dog and like have your face up in their face? You'd be like, no, because you're a button as a dog bitten by a dog as a kid. It's true. But being on Google is the most mundane, no danger, yeah. nothing memorable about it activity, which is why we also tend to remember things that other people tell us a lot more, right? Exactly. Because fundamentally it's it's terrifying to talk to people, not just not mm -hmm. just if you have social anxiety, but even if you don't, it's a knowing what humans do and it's a <laughs> it's a it's a scary idea. Yeah, and you always remember the questions you got wrong in class way more than the ones you got right. So mm. you're embarrassed. Yeah. I like what you said about like Google's going to know that movie way before you do. Mm -hmm. Because something I wanted to mention last week's episode but forgot to um, in support of the idea that there's a real joy to learning is how often you will have a movie in your head and you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I want to know this movie. And someone will say, I'll Google it. And you go, no, mm -hmm. don't look it up. I need to figure this out by yourself because mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a pride to it, right? Like yeah. you, you, want to, you want to prove to yourself that you can remember something. And our memories don't really get exercised that often anymore. So I would say that last week we were kind of making the case for why we should be trying to re- integrate or re-internalize all this knowledge this week we're going into more practical methods of how we can do so mm -hmm. so um 
I started out with just mindfulness, which I think we maybe overused that word on this podcast a lot. <laughs> but in this case, I'm talking about a, de a deliberate awareness of what we're learning, how we're learning it, and why we're learning it, and what mm. we actually want to be learning. Because I think so often with the internet, hopefully this isn't an experience unique to me, I go down rabbit holes of things, and then it seems so important in the moment. And then afterwards, I'm like, why was I looking at like celebrity heights mm -hmm. or, you know, different types of shoes? And you don't remember most of it because it, because you weren't actually that. You weren't uh, intentional in learning yeah, it. You, you weren't actually that invested. It's just that the internet can make things seem like, like a choose your own adventure. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, I read this page. It's directing me to this page. I have to mm -hmm. do that. Yeah. As you were saying with the, Oh, let me, let me remember it. Let me do it. Like, don't look it up. It's like, we need to start learning to trust our reflexes instead of just trusting Google or trusting our instincts, because you're never going to say something without fact checking it for the most part. And as you were just saying about the rabbit holes and intentional learning and mindfulness, it's also just like when you practice mindfulness, you can kind of start to memorize things for the sake of it. Cause you never need to memorize it. You don't need to learn math. You don't need to do any of these things because you will, in fact, always have your phone on you. But practicing mindfulness for the sake of it and memorization for the sake of it, it'll strengthen those pathways just like literally. So then you'll start memorizing things a little easier and so on. Yeah, I mean, we've been using Google as the example, but I'm going to posit BuzzFeed. So let's say, not the quizzes, but let's say you read an article mm. about, uh, oh, this person's just been cast in a movie that you actually do care about. And you mm. search it up and you watch the, you read the BuzzFeed article and it's like, okay, I got my information. Oh, he's playing him. That's cool. You scroll to the bottom and then there's three recommended articles. This other movie is also starring this other person and you click that and it, it keeps going. Like the recommendations at the end, right? Mm. So I'm going to say maybe a concrete tool to try and promote mindfulness in this way is to never click links. Because mm. links, generally, you didn't search for them. That's a really interesting so, point. Um, I like that. Why, why be at the behest of an algorithm like that? Mm. Kind of. That's really powerful. Like, I don't know Thank how you. else to put it, but <laughs> it's how we feel. You go on TikTok or Instagram to do one thing, and then you get sucked in because of an algorithm. And that's just controlling you and then decreasing your concentration and literally your brain's capacity. It's frustrating yeah, I to think me. The, the mindfulness... It's like it was never needed in history because it was never so easy to accidentally learn things that we didn't want to. Mm. But today I know so many song lyrics and I know of movies that I've never watched and I know politics of countries that I don't belong to, you know, and I never really tried to learn any of those things. It just kind of happened to me. Mm. So I think we need to be mindful and set up barriers and say, no, I'm only going to let in certain things sometimes. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's also proven that we remember things that people say to us way more than anything we read or just kind of come to at our own because our brains value relationships. So another kind of practical tool is socializing. And I also am going to say, write, don't type and say things out loud. Mm. Because you know when you have to memorize a phone number or you have to memorize a certain address really quickly, you have no idea to write it down. You just say it and say it and say it because it solidifies it in your brain. And same with writing, like writing stuff on paper, you're forging something didn't exist whereas typing is fleeting yeah yeah no, I, I definitely agree on the writing versus typing thing i also think that having a distinct place for the internet we've extolled the virtues before of the computer room mm. so having not always having your phone on you i think that can be a good thing because that way you're walking around without a safety net mm. and when i was trying to prepare for this episode i was thinking a lot about the analogy of learning your way around a city or learning mm. your, your way around a place that you don't know very well with new streets and maybe you don't recognize street names. Maybe you don't even speak the language mm. of the city and you don't yet have that kind of visual memory of, oh, well, I know this building or this corner you know, mm -hmm. and I know where this place is in relation to that. And I was thinking that when you have your phone on you, I won't say you never learn the city, but it takes you a, a lot longer mm. time than if you just didn't have the safety net, right? Because yeah, you don't have sure. to. Yeah. You don't have to know your way around at all. Yeah, I read this quote of stop feeding your comfort zone, which is what you do when you're constantly referring to a map on your phone or you're constantly referring to the same recipe, like you said last week. 
you're feeding a comfort zone, a space that you're comfortable in, so your brain's never going to expand and build new pathways. Yeah, I actually found a whole article about this, which was called The Dangers of Externalizing Knowledge. And I have a quote written by someone called Devin Coldway. It was a blog post. And he said, while consulting the GPS means you don't build an internal map of your neighborhood, consulting the external knowledge of the internet means you don't build a map of your entire intellectual world. So it's like oh, wow. um, <laughs> that idea of being geographically clueless, which I mean, some people are just geographically clueless. Like I, I happily admit that about myself, like with directions and knowing where I am physically, I'm probably in like the bottom 5% for the whole world. Very, very bad at it. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not something that can be, that can be trained and improved yeah. at. And as you said about comfort zones, it's not good to just say, well, directions, I'm hopeless. Good thing I have Google. Yeah, that's exciting to know that we can change our brains. We always act like they're fixed from the age we're eight, but no, we can change them. We can retrain ourselves to be readers and to be writers and to be creative. Another thing I like about the computer room is that, I mean, let's say in the solo scene in the magical uh, future utopia, everyone also has a computer room, so they don't have the phone on them. I think it would be easier to talk to people in real life because let's say in the elevator, they can't just be like, oh, what's happening with Jack Black? You know, if someone mm-hmm. else walks in, so they don't have to awkwardly interact with them. Yeah. Um, and another thing is that I think it would actually incentivize a more positive use of the Google, of the internet, because you would pretty much only Google things. Or let's say your living room is like your home base and that's where you have your computer and that's where you kind of are for the most part learning. And then you're going out and doing your work and doing your exercise and doing your hanging out with other people and and doing your travel and things like that. And along the way, you're having observations and you're, oh, that looks cool. I want to know a little bit more about that. And this looks cool. So you actually have to remember them or at least write them down before you go back to Mm. your base and kind of research them instead of just saying, wow, that's a cool shirt. I'm going to look it up right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's going to strengthen your memory. And if you get home, you're like, oh, that was actually stupid. Exactly. And you don't look it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there'd be a lot of those. We both looked up the Weeble Wobble song before bed last night, so right. That's, there was that. Was that was that necessary? No, it kept us up for an extra ten minutes. Could we have let the debate just sit, just simmer? Could have. This is like <laughs> an intervention, but yes. <laughs> I think the only other thing I had for this was that we need to organize our spaces better and our artifacts better. Because it's like, okay, someone writes down their phone number. Instead of just immediately putting in your phone, maybe you write it in a journal where you keep people's phone numbers. Mm. And the act of writing it down or the act of putting a date on the calendar, you're going to remember it way better than if you just put it in Places space. for each thing. Yes. Instead of just the digital uh, pit for everything. Yeah, because then you have the physical map of your space in your head, which you can refer to instead of just the dimensionless iPhone. Yeah, I had a final thing, which was a way of improving your memory and uh, internalizing your knowledge was to actually practice doing so, practice memorizing things. Mm -hmm. And it sounds kind of silly, but I realized I have never really practiced memorizing at all. So I think I'm going to start doing that. And the examples that came to mind were like when kids have to practice scripture and, Mm and that can be debated, but I like the thought behind it, which is that they they won't always need a Bible on them. Mm -hmm. They'll just always... They have internalized those things. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a nice idea. Um, another key element of memorization and improving at it is good sleep. Most people don't mm-hmm. do that. Meditation also really helps a lot because you're clearing your mind. Mm-hmm. And learning an instrument or learning a language, I found, was a good hobby. Yeah, and even doing crossword puzzles and games like that helps promote memory and internalizing knowledge because you're drawing on those things like playing scrabble you can't take out your phone you need to recall the yeah words chess also helps a lot jigsaw mm. puzzles i thought were fun mm. and because that's like oh i remember that piece that was somewhere over there mm-hmm. jigsaw puzzles those are really good for like helping people age well mentally right i think yeah they are i always like the idea of jigsaw puzzles this is completely off topic but i never know what to do what, what do you do with it once you finish that's always what i don't know do you just oh that was fun and then you put it all back in the box and then you We'll redo that next Saturday. I'm always kind of yeah. confused about the life. Because you could do the same jigsaw puzzle again and again, and it's not going to get that much easier because it's about finding the pieces. I don't know. Maybe that's a question for next week. What do you do with jigsaw puzzles <laughs> when you're done with them? Dancing also. Dancing also apparently is another practice. Ah, um, I didn't know that. Because you have to learn steps. Yeah. 
I have never learned to dance, but mm. perhaps if you kind of break it down so it's more like math, because that's who I am, maybe I'd enjoy it more. Perhaps. Yes, I did ballet for most of my life, so maybe it helped improve my memory. I don't know if it did. I also came up with an activity, which was just to practice recalling things. So like, yeah. let's say you make a list, like a grocery list, and mm -hmm. you, you have like 10 or 11 things on it. And you say, okay, I wrote this in an hour. I'm going to try and remember it. It reminds me of um, the Nintendo game desire, designer, Shigeru Miyamoto, who always says that one of his lifelong uh, fun activities is be he'll see something in real life, guess the length of it, pull out a ruler, and see how close he mm -hmm. was. In terms of saying that's like a fun activity, that's about the level of it, I think. Yeah. It's very wholesome, and I don't know, I like that. Yeah. It's like a secret power. Exactly. Hmm. And I feel like memorization today is a secret power. Imagine if someone asked you... The name, oh, who is that actor in that movie? You just always have it. Like, that's your niche of things that you remember. I like that. And I feel like people used to always know poems. Well, what about this? Let's say you meet someone. Oh, here, do you want to put your number in my phone? No, just tell me. My cousin used to do that. <laughs> and, like, and he's a year older than me. Yeah. I remember one time he's like, oh, I forgot my home, phone at home. Can I use yours? And I was like, sure. And I was like, do you know their number? And he's like, yeah. And he knew everyone's number. I'm like, do you know my number? This guy I talked to like a couple times a year. He's mm -hmm. like, yeah. In, I was um, like, what? In middle school, there were probably me and I think at, at its peak, it got to about uh, 11 or 12 of us other kids in the grade who would memorize each other's locker combinations, mm -hmm. like always peak and, and learn them all. And um, they were, none of them were written down. And we used to just switch them to annoy people. <laughs> so every time you go to your locker, you'd be like, ah. Because someone had switched it, so you had to run through like 11 combinations. Yeah. Each of them being three numbers. And now I'm really impressed I could do that. It's funny. Yeah. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Yeah. I was a real trickster. Still are. It's yeah. true. You scared me this morning by knocking on the bedroom window <laughs> like a psycho. <laughs> uh, thank you all for listening. Yep. If you want to have more of our antics, we are on Instagram. Aaron has a blog. We have a website. It's all linked below. And we look forward to seeing you next week.